This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I say that arguably the most important decision to make when becoming a foster parent is choosing what agency you're going to go through. And why is that, Natasha? As a foster parent, you really have to rely on your foster care agency for support. My partner and I chose Kids Crossing, and we really have no regrets. What are some of those services that you and your partner used? Well, Kids Crossing provides many no-cost services, including therapy services for the kids, family therapy, family preservation services, foster parent support groups, trauma-informed parenting trainings, and much more. Kids Crossing even gave my partner and I a parenting coach, which was super helpful as we don't have any kids of our own. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. This episode is supported by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, I can tell you from personal experience that home buying can be really stressful and you really want to make sure you're in the right hands. Tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado, Natasha. So Fabulous Homes Colorado offers no pressure home buying, and they also specialize in serving veterans and first-time home buyers in El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo in beautiful Colorado. And they also offer video tours so you can buy remotely. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her that Just a Special sent you. You can learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated. We would place these uh, Native American kids into these foster homes. And a lot of those foster homes, the foster parents were non-Native. We had to provide a lot of uh, training around Native American culture and considerations for these foster parents. Do you think grandma would agree with you? This this child's grandma would agree with you that it's better for them to live with a non-native person off the reservation versus living here on the reservation where they have the language spoken, where they could do the coming of age ceremonies and have the benefit of the extended families, the food, the, you know, all these things because those are not provided out here off the reservation. You lose that connection. And in doing that, you, you start weakening the cultural identity. And that cultural identity is very important because it will provide you with a guiding star on, on how to navigate through life and the things that you come across in your life. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to kids in foster care. So something that we've told you guys is that we're sisters, so I hope it's no surprise at this point. But something that we've actually never talked about with each other is when was the first time we realized we were brown? Yeah, that's a great question. And for me, I was in fourth grade. We recently moved to a new city that was very, very white. And for the first time ever, when I was going to school, I was the only non-white kid in my class. And one day I realized this, just like, I think midway through fourth grade. And I came home really upset actually. And I think I even cried a little bit and telling my mom who's from Iran. And so she's brown too. And I said, mom, I don't understand. Why am I all the color of dirt? My hair is brown, my eyes are brown, my skin is brown, and everyone else in my class has multiple colors. Like they have blonde hair and blue eyes or brown hair and green eyes. And no one is all the same color except for me. And uh, she, you know, talked me down and talked to me about having pride and who I am and where I come from. Um, but how about for you, Rachel? When was the first time you noticed you were different than most of the people around you? So for me, honestly, like I never really identified as being brown because my skin color is, you know, a color that I feel like it can blend with, you know, being more white, but I feel like some of my features can blend with being more Middle Eastern. So together, I feel like I'm somewhere in between. When I'm with my mom's side of the family who's Middle Eastern, I feel more white. And then when I'm with my dad, who's white, I feel more Middle Eastern. So I always feel like I'm in this middle zone. 
Mm, that's interesting. So you kind of feel like you don't fully fit in any box. Right. Yeah. Like I fit into this like gray zone in between the two. What's also been really weird for me is that as an adult, when I hang out with our dad, people assume that we're partners or dating. And it's because our skin colors are so different. And what's interesting is when people know that we're family, they're like, oh yeah, you look totally like your dad. I totally see the resemblance. But when people don't know, they just assume that there's no way we could be related. And so it's been kind of awkward because there's like, you know, a 30 year age gap. And sometimes I can like feel the judgment of like a waiter or we'll be hiking and, you know, we can kind of get like the side eye from people. That is a great spotlight into showcasing the challenges that come from being a minority. And being a part of a minority culture is no stranger to our guest today. That's right. I had the opportunity to talk with Bruce Lee Claire. He is a member of the Rosebud Sioux tribe. And he raised four of his own biological kids that are now adults and is really passionate about youth. And he spent more than 30 years being a youth advocate. And most of those years he spent working within the foster care system. And to start us off, Bruce shared about his own childhood. I was born and raised in South Dakota on the Yankton Sioux Reservation. And uh, I was in the 60s. Totally dating myself. <laughs> we grew up in a house, my grandpa's house and my grandma's house did not have uh, running water. So we had, to, we, we had to haul water every day. It was in a real small town and my grandpa was pretty traditional and my grandma was as well. But they went to church. So we not only practiced traditional type of beliefs and practices, but also attended the church. And then my mom moved us into the city of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is uh, the largest city in the state, which is about two hours from um, the reservation and where the rest of my family stayed and grew up. So um, I grew up there. I have three older brothers. I was the youngest of four boys. And uh, we had a younger sister. And she passed away when we were children. So it was just us four boys. And then uh, I have a pretty pretty tight extended family. My mom has two sisters. And all of their children are girls. And uh, we grew up together. Um, and uh, for us, as Lakota people, it's like our extended family, my mom's sisters, they have that right to correct me. My aunts would... Uh, be able to discipline, you know, counsel me or whatever if I was getting in trouble. And uh, my, all my cousins are like my, like what people would refer to as their brothers and sisters. So uh, we grew up pretty close and uh, attended a lot of traditional um, powwows, uh, naming ceremonies. I was given to my uh, Indian name and at one of these powwows. And all the powwows that we traveled to were within the state of Colorado and they were all Lakota powwows and so i really wasn't familiar with very many other tribes growing up well, once i moved down to durango colorado where i still live uh, i got to meet people from different tribes the navajo nation is pretty close to here and one of their sacred mountains is right outside of durango here and my wife is navajo so i've got to, over the years got to learn a lot about their tribe and also the Southern Ute Indian tribe. That's who I currently work for. Their land is just like up the hill from here. It sounds like being a Native person has had a really strong influence on your life. Um, can you describe how it shaped you into the person that you are today? Sure. As Lakota people, we have a lot of oral stories and um, just traditions and teachings that come along with those. Um, some of the basic things are about being truthful. So honesty is uh, highly valued. We believe our words have power and that you should think about your words before you speak. And so um, there's an old saying that the elders, when they would get together and uh, discuss an issue at a meeting, they would uh, take their time. And so they say they were slow eaters and slow thinkers. And so they'd take their time, listen to all different sides of any kind of issue and, and really contemplate it and formulate their own positions before they would speak. So honesty is something that I, I value. And, and again, it's all based on Lakota traditional practices and beliefs. 
other ones are like humility, uh, being humble. Not, we're not supposed to brag about ourselves. And, and even in ceremony, when we were being honored in one way or another, we would have somebody else uh, speak on our behalf. And then um, the idea of community-mindedness, that there's a lot of symbolism and teachings, and one of them is, and I share this with the Native youth I work with, is the symbolism of a circle and what it represents, that the continuous cycle of life is one of them. But the other thing is, is that we all belong, we all have a place uh, around that circle or within that circle. And uh, if you exclude somebody for one reason or another, then our circle is not complete in our community. So we look at each other as equals. And so I really try to live by these uh, teachings and some of these values. And I try to um, share those teachings and whatnot with my children and with uh, other Native youth that I have the opportunity to, to talk with and share some stuff with. Mm. Yeah. And I'd imagine a lot of those principles to really help and inform your work in the foster care system that you've been a part of. Um, can you talk to us a little more about how you first became involved in the foster care system and the different roles you held within it? Sure. I was actually attending college and my brother uh, was attending college here as well at Fort Lewis. And he had a job with a residential behavioral treatment program, a nonprofit that worked specifically with members of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. So he encouraged me to apply for the job because I used to work at a boys club in South Dakota and just like kids in general, and, uh, was a residential child care worker and uh, in a group home. And then uh, about six months later, I started training to be a, a coordinator, which would oversee one of the one of the homes and uh, started training uh, to be the director. And so then I was a director of this uh, nonprofit. And during the course of the, that first year, the program opened up its doors to all tribal nations for referrals for the residential uh, behavioral treatment program. So at that point, I got to work with a lot of different tribes, basically, residential behavioral treatment in a group home setting. And then we also opened up a semi-independent living program for older kids uh, that would probably not go home with their parents and would age out of the system and and pretty much be on their own. And then um, along with that, we noticed that there was a, a... a big need for the younger population, 12-year-olds, let's say 13-year-olds are pretty young yet. And we didn't really want to have them in a group home with a, a bunch of other older kids that probably had more behavioral issues that they were dealing with. And so we um, did a foster home placements, and they implemented our behavioral treatment uh, model in their foster homes. And so uh, we started licensing the different um, foster parents and, and go to their homes and go down our checklist of all the things that they needed to have in place before we could place a children, you know, any of our children with them. And then we would place these uh, Native American kids into these foster homes. And a lot of those foster homes, the foster parents were non-Native. We had to provide a lot of uh, training around Native American culture and considerations for these foster parents because we did not want them to um, expose these uh, Native children to situations that were considered taboo from their tribes. So uh, we did that. I worked with that organization for 20 years. In the last five of those years, our organization contracted with the New Mexico Children's Youth and Family Department. And uh, what, what they had noticed was that kids who were aging out of foster care, 18 to 21 years old, were um, often uh, – left homeless. And so there's a Chafee Act, uh, which provided funding for that population because 60% of the kids aging out of foster care were being homeless. And so um, the state of New Mexico was implementing their Chafee program with all their cases that were identified through the county and social services. But the tribal social services um, did not provide their information of who was eligible for the program to the state. So uh, the state contracted with our organization, and we reached out to the different tribal social workers and were able to identify the tribal members on their caseloads that were eligible for the program for this independent living uh, support. And so I traveled around New Mexico for the last five years working with that organization to provide some independent living skills training. So 
I guess that's about it. <laughs> well, that's a lot. And when you say 60% of youth were who were aging out were ending up homeless, was that 60% of native youth or 60% of the overall foster care? Well, at the time, it was uh, just the statistic of overall youth aging out of foster care. Yeah, so much. Can you get into a little more some of the culture clashes you experienced between the native culture and non-native foster homes that these youth were being placed in and some of the education you had to share with these families? Well, um, you know, before we even place a child in their home, we did some training with them. A lot of people are not very familiar at all uh, of Native American uh, culture and populations. There's over 500 fairly recognized tribes in the United States. We're, we're not all the same. We all have our own beliefs and practices, ceremonies, uh, creation stories, our beliefs of where our people have come from. Uh, we don't all live in teepees. We, we don't all wear feathers, those kinds of things. So our training would start off with uh, some basic knowledge about hunters and gatherers you know, versus sedentary tribes, matrilineal societies versus matrilineal societies. Uh, gender roles, and then we would get into more specifics about the tribe that we were working with around stuff like taboos, um, things and situations that were considered taboo. Uh, because I did mention earlier that we did not want to ex have these children placed in a foster home and then the foster parents unwillingly do something where the family is um, saying, oh, that's taboo, you're not supposed to do that, now I have to have a ceremony performed for my child. So we, we tried to be proactive and really, um, you know, delve into those things. Yeah. And backing up a little bit, can you define what a taboo is for our listeners who aren't familiar with that term? A taboo is basically something that is based on your belief of a situation that impacts your behavior. An example would be, you're not supposed to whistle at night. It's taboo. And it's like, what does that mean? It's like, well, there's a lot of beliefs around whistling at night and having to do with the spirits. And so uh, a lot of kids, um, they'll even tell each other, oh, you're not supposed to whistle at night. So they know some of this stuff, but they might not know all of them. Uh, but so it's a situation that you get in that you're not supposed to do, basically. Um, there's consequences for it, or you have to do a ceremony because of it, those kinds of things. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, indigenous cultures that have their own unique beliefs around hair. And so it's pretty sensitive for uh, most tribes. It's not appropriate to touch somebody's hair. But, uh, one of our kids who was um, in school and, and got gum caught in their hair. And the teacher said, here, let me help you and went and cut it out. And um, so the, the child came back home uh, to the group home and to told me what happened. Uh, I had to inform the parents and whatnot. So the parents came up and said, where's the hair? And I said, well, I don't know. That he so they asked the student, you know, asked her child, where's the hair? And she goes, I don't know what he did with it. So that was um, cause enough for that family to say, well, I have to take him now to have a ceremony performed. Other things would be stuff around animals, different types of animals, um, snakes, spiders, owls coyotes, stuff like that. There's different beliefs around those as well. And so uh, that was another situation that we encountered. And what had happened was we had a, a visit where the family came to the foster home to visit their child. And when they went in the home and with the grandma, uh, right there in the living room was uh, a big glass tank with a snake in it. And so grandma just uh, shook her head and said, we can't be in here. And so they walked out. And so then my coworker called me and kind of explained what's going on. I said, well, what happened? And so she was, well, there's a snake in there. I said, well, who said they, who said they could have a snake? She goes, well, I did. And so she didn't, didn't know um, about the, the taboo of, of having a, a snake in the home or even watching them eat. So those are uh, things that uh, I think if we can be proactive uh, we can prevent a lot of that stuff from happening. And uh, the thing about it is, is that when you are doing trainings with um, people and trying to enlighten them, sometimes they don't understand or they don't, how would I say this? They don't accept it as being a valid 
belief or, or whatever. And then uh, to the point where the response on their face and the comments they make, it's almost like, yeah, well, you know, like you're talking about Bigfoot or talking about aliens or whatever. And some of them will actually kind of laugh you off or get offended by it. And uh, those are things, again, that um, over my years of working in, in the field with foster parents and residential child care workers is to really help them understand that there are a lot of cultural differences. And even if you don't believe it yourself, we're not asking you to, but at least that you um, respect the fact that the youth and the family of these youth uh, believe it. Don't uh, belittle it. Don't mock it. Uh, don't get offended by it. You know, um, So there's a lot of things around that whole need for training for non-Native people working with Native um, youth. And that's not just in, in terms of foster care. Um, I, I see a lot of need in the educational system. Yeah. And let's dive into why it's so important. Why is it so important that any adult who is interacting with Native youth are getting this training? Can you talk more about um, how important it is for these youth to have a strong sense of their culture and belonging and really the strength that comes from them being connected to their culture? Well, I'd like to start off with uh, the idea of a sense of belonging. And so when you're a minority person, uh, a person of color, uh, and you're in the, what I refer to as the dominant culture, which is uh, non-native or uh, people uh, you know that are not persons of color. Uh, so you have a, a native kid, for example, in a classroom where they're the, they're the only uh, dark-skinned person in the room, um, and that is something that they experience pretty pretty regularly throughout their lives, almost daily. Uh, and so when you're part of the dominant culture, you, you don't really understand what it's like to be in those kinds of situations. And because of that, um, the expectation is while you're here, you you know, you're, you're just like the rest of us and I'm going to treat you just like everyone else. But they're not just like everyone else. They have a different set of uh, belief systems and, and, and things like that. But the fact that they're a minority in the classroom uh, has a level of uh, trust issues. Uh, I like to, in the trainings of Native American culture, kind of go back over the history of the interactions with the government and the Native peoples of this continent and uh, the westward advancement, you know, um, starting off on the East Coast, coming across the West and uh, the different conflicts that they've had with the Native people and uh, the colonization, the treaties, the broken treaties. And that's another Another fact is that the U.S. government has entered into over 300 treaties with the American Indian tribes over the years and, and have broken, um, I believe, all of them. So when you talk about that and then um, other types of, I guess the military would call them skirmishes or battles, um, we often refer to those situations as massacres. Sand uh, Creek Massacre in Colorado is pretty relevant. Just real briefly, there was a uh, encampment that we're told that they, if they flow the flag of the United States um, at their camp, that they would be that they, uh, that would identify them as being peaceful and it would be safe for them and they would not be attacked. Well, they were uh, being attacked, and the, and the chief at the time raised a white flag along with the. American flag, and, and still uh, several hundred of their people got got killed, and uh, it was not just by the military, it was by a militia, and not only that, the bodies were mutilated and paraded through Denver, and so um, there's a, those kinds of things, as, along with like the Wounded Knee Massacre, along with the boarding school era, which the mantra was, kill the Indian, save the man. There's a lot of uh, distrust. You know, there's that old saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, um, fool me 300 times, you know, it's just, I can't believe you anymore. And so for us as, as indigenous people are really valuing truthfulness in our interactions with uh, representatives from the government or what have you, um, there, it hasn't always been truthful. 
And so um, that is something that uh, has instilled in our a lot of indigenous peoples the historical distrust of uh, officials, whether they be state, federal, or whatever. And, and really those interactions of um, being treated differently because of uh, the color of your skin. And if you have that done to you enough times, you start questioning uh, a non-native person, uh, a, a person not of color. Uh, what are their thoughts and what are their views on me as as a Native American man or woman or, or child? Do they not like me because of just the way I look or because of my ethnicity? Are they going to treat me differently because of that? And if you look at statistics, the answer to that is um, usually yes. There are people out there that are going to treat you differently because of their beliefs uh, of superiority, I guess, uh, supremacy, <laughs> those kinds of things. And uh, a lot of times those people with those beliefs are in positions of what uh, is referred to as positions of trust. And so uh, people who are entrusted with the education, the supervision of our children, uh, whether it be foster parents, residential child care workers or teachers, um, and then also uh, people in positions of authority, police officers and judges and whatnot. You can look at incarceration rates. You can look at ticketing rates. And there's a lot of different data out there that uh, shows that uh, our people of color have a different experience than non-people of color, I guess, when they come in contact with law enforcement and whatnot. So it's a real thing for the classroom or for a foster home or what have you. Really creating that sense of belonging is vital to establishing trust. Um, so those two things I think are the highest priority that I try to emphasize is uh, building a trusting relationship and uh, creating that sense of belonging for the youth that despite our differences, you're, you're equal here. One of the things I like to, to share with people is that uh, I treat people with respect regardless of whether or not I respect, respect them. So, um, I, you know, they do this in the law enforcement academy as well. You don't have to respect people to treat them with respect. And so that basic principle of being respectful to one another, I think, is uh, the, the step number one in terms of um, trying to work towards that trusting relationship. When you're a non-native person working with a native uh, youth, you're, you're already um, if you're trying to embark on build, building a relationship, you're already starting from a deficit because of that historical distrust. So it's not personal. There's no need to get defensive about it. There's nothing that the you know that the non-native person has done personally themselves. And so I hear people say, "Why well, wasn't there? I didn't do this to your people." And it's like I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm just trying to share this information with you, just to help you understand how these youth are. Um, the way they are, you know, that they have that distrust. And so um, once you uh, build that sense of uh, uh, trust in their relationship, then I think um, slowly but surely that uh, relationship will get stronger. And what it's going to take is a consistent, persistent effort from the provider, not to be too pushy, but to um, not give up. And, and the expectations of timing are very important as well. That, uh, yeah, I think this kid should be able to feel comfortable within two weeks of being in my home. It might take that kid three months. You know, who knows how long it's going to take. It's all individualized. And especially if you have a child who comes from a ACEs, one of the adverse childhood experiences, whether it be abuse or neglect or what have you, that that's even more of a deficit that the, that the provider has to overcome. So I encourage non-Native people who are working with Native youth to find something out about the, the tribe or, or what have you, um, at least where they're at, where they're coming from, if you have a chance to go visit the reservation, just so you can kind of get an idea of, of um, you know, the backstory to the to the youth so there's a lot of opportunity out there for us to to share some uh some information around uh native cultures so that's why i'm here today i guess right absolutely and i love too how you brought up that idea of respect as that cornerstone because i think that's something we see a lot in foster care and I know it's something you heard too from non-native foster homes is I can provide a better life for this child. Um, maybe they go to the reservation and they see 
you know, that the kid maybe didn't have their own room there or that there's like dirt floors or, you know, it's just a different type of way of living. Can you talk about that? That belief that, you know, I can quote unquote provide a better life. Yes. And and I've experienced that um, in in my work with foster parents. Uh, We did have a foster parent who actually went to the reservation where one of the children was from and saw the living conditions. And a lot of time, uh, reservation life is referred to as kind of third world-like. No running water, dirt floors, living in a hogan, what have you. A lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of uh, violence, maybe some gang activity depending on the community. Meth is now a big deal. So because the community is so sparse and small, in population size, these kind of things just seem, seem to be more evident. And and so the, the the foster parent came back and said he wanted to adopt this child because I can provide a better life for him. And I, I said, well, what do you mean better? And so he brought, well, you know, have you been down there? You know, and he started um, talking about all these things in his eyes that were negative. There's no jobs there. There's nothing to do, like there's no movie theaters, you know, so all these kinds of commercial type of activities is what he felt and luxuries were uh, meant better. And my response to him as well, do you think grandma would agree with you? This this child's grandma would agree with you that it's better for them to live with a non-native person off the reservation versus living here on the reservation where they have the language spoken, where they can uh, make sure that they are not exposed to the taboos, where they can do the um, coming-of-age ceremonies and have the benefit of the extended families, the food, you know, all these things, because those are not provided out here off the reservation. You lose that connection. And in doing that, you, you start weakening the cultural identity. And that cultural identity is um, very important because – it will provide you with a guiding star on, on how to navigate through life and the things that you come across in your life. The example I'll use is um, a Native youth that comes into a, a situation where somebody is treating them differently because of their ethnicity or making fun of them, making, you know, having long hair for a boy, you know, being called a girl and being made fun of, all those kinds of things. That cultural identity will, um, and that and that pride of being um, a member of a tribe or what have you, is going to help them navigate those kinds of situations. Uh, rather than uh, get into an alter physical altercations and whatnot, you can reflect on your teachings of, um, you know, why I have long hair and what it means to me, and and the and the fact that I know this stuff about I'm supposed to be respectful to other people. This person here is not being respectful to, to me. And so rather than being angry at this person, what my grandma would say is have pity on them. No one taught them any better. They, they think they're better than you, but they're not. And no one taught them that. And so that kept me out of a lot of altercations with people when I, when I was growing up in the city of Sioux Falls because there was not very many natives there. And I experienced a lot of situations growing up that were um, – negative because of uh, my ethnicity. But uh, being able to navigate those, um, relying on my cultural beliefs and my cultural identity and my sense of pride uh, really helped me uh, see the situation for what it was. And and that's why I like to do the trainings as much as I can, because a lot of people just don't know. We're so thankful for our community of supporters that makes Just As Special possible. This season of Just As Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, as you know, my partner and I started becoming licensed to foster parent through our county and then switched to Kids Crossing. Natasha, how did both of those experiences compare? Well, I'm really amazed at all the additional supports Kids Crossing has provided us with, including a home coordinator. So our home coordinator is our first point of contact whenever we need anything, and she's always available and always on top of it. And she's also helped us really navigate our placements team, which can get confusing when there's so many people involved. And she'll even help us decide next steps when we're unsure of what's best for the kid in our home. 
And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. I also heard too once a quote that I'm paraphrasing, but when you're in the minority, you have to be fluent in your own culture and in the majority's culture, but the majority only has to be fluent in their own culture. It's like switching gears. And you have a native child on the reservation in the classrooms at the school back home. They're pretty much all native students. And then um, functioning there is a little bit different than coming to, like, let's say, a school like Durango, um, where there's not very many natives. And now all of a sudden you're a part of the minority. And there's a different type of uh, communication styles. There's a study that was done about wait time. Uh, basically what that means is in the course of a, a conversation, speaker number one is talking. And then as soon as they finish, speaker number two starts talking. How much time did it take for that to happen in between the end of speaker one and the beginning of speaker two? And what they notice is that when you get into native cultures, that time grows. We have a longer wait time to ensure that the person has finished what they're going to say. And so just that wait time is different when you come into um, a non-native culture and and the way they speak to each other and and how fast they speak and how fast they want to answer back from you. causes a lot of problems in communication, especially with adults working with native youth. The adult says, I have a question for you and I need your answer. And then they wait. And if the child's trying to formulate their answer, trying to think about their words that they're going to use because they want it to be accurate and truthful, but the provider doesn't give them enough time and then says, well, what's the matter with you? I need that answer. And especially if a person's um, agitated, it just gets uh, uh, increasingly more and more of a, you know, hurry up and tell me, you know, look at me when I'm talking to you is another one. Uh, Eye contact is a different aspect of communication from native culture versus uh, non-native culture. Native culture, uh, kids looking at you in the eye, staring at you, or like glaring at you, whatever it is, is a a form of disrespect. But in a dominant culture, they want you to look at me when I talk to you. And so they got to look at them, you know. And so knowing those two differences are something that is not really taught to native kids. Um, they have to learn that and, and, uh, they learn it through their own experiences. And sometimes they learn it from, uh, their family members who uh, might coach them up a little bit, but you know, it's not like, um, we as native people have, uh, oral traditions about these differences in communication and how to, you know, how to do it. So, um, it's not taught in a book or anything. So when I work with the native students, I talk with them about cultural differences as well. It's not just um, non-native people that need to to learn about native cultures. It's the native kids that need to learn about the dominant culture, you know, about being assertive, about being advocating for yourself, you know, about gender roles and um, different expectations that people have on you um, when you're out here off the reservation. But I had a child, uh, I'd say he's about 16 years old, grew up in a very traditional home. Language was spoken, uh, you know, tribal language, hardly any English. And gender roles is a, a part of uh, culture where men do this, women do that, or, or men do this and women can't do that. And so this uh, particular young man was uh, in the group home and we had a non-native staff member ask this young man to to do something and the young man replies to her he says i can't do that that's woman's job and he didn't mean it in a disrespectful way he didn't mean it as being defiant he just he's never done that it's not something he was supposed to do and so the provider got offended by that and you know that's very sexist and all this stuff and and just commenced to kind of lecturing the guy uh so i had to work with the young guy later and say look this is what you guys do back home, but this is uh, what these guys out here, this is what they expect and what they believe. And that's why she was upset or, you know, got frustrated and whatnot. I said, but out of respect for, you know, your culture, we'll, we'll just figure something else that you can do for, you know, your chores around here. And so we tailored, you know, the, the, the chores. So we wasn't having this kid do something that 
uh, if his mom came up and she's like, what are you doing that for? And that's woman's work. Or if his dad, you know, showed up, those kinds of things. And so um, it's, it's just very important to, like I said, take advantage of opportunities of learning about um, cultures of the youth that you're going to be working with. I'm glad you described that example, because I think that's something that happens over and over again, too, in foster care is um, just that respect piece and how easily that can be misinterpreted because any kid coming into a new home, right? Every home has its own culture. So it's going to be looking a little bit different. I would imagine too, that maybe some foster parents listening could maybe be feeling a little overwhelmed at this point. Cause you know, the culture is very different. Can you, I guess, describe an example of a time where you felt like it was working really well, where a native child was placed in a non-native home and how the family was able to set things up. You felt like the child's culture was really respected and they did have that strong sense of belonging. Sure. Um, it's, it's actually, that happens more often than where, where it goes wrong. <laughs> so the, the examples I referred to earlier um, are just a few instances over the courses of years. So um, I don't want potential foster parents or current foster parents to be discouraged when working with the native youth because a lot of the time, um, the youth actually do enjoy uh, being somewhere else, um, different aspects of it anyway, um, than the reservation. I mentioned those uh, things like going to the movie, you know, just something simple as that would be kind of exciting for somebody who uh, came from a community where the nearest movie theater is two hours away and they don't go very often, going roller skating, those kinds of things. But the home itself um, – the interactions, the different communication styles. The indigenous youth, uh, by uh, training, I guess, would be the way to say that, are pretty observant. And a lot of Native cultures will say, uh, children are, you know, you guys have your role. And right now that's to play and, you know, learn and, you know, listen and help out here and there. But um, as they get older, then they actually go through a ceremony where they, Say okay, you've you've been a child. Now you got to start preparing to be an adult. And so, what does that mean? And so, they're provided with a lot of coaching and mentoring and whatnot. So, depending on where they're at in their own development, that'll determine uh, kind of um, the interactions, uh, the expectations that the provider would have with the the youth. One of the things that I would say not to do is to um, expect that that child knows all about their culture. Um, I also often refer to a lot of Native youth being on a continuum. On one side, you have modern-day, everyday American life, and on the other side, you have very traditional indigenous life, uh, Native American life, and, and practices, language, food, you know, living, all that stuff. And so a lot of the Native youth that end up in foster care, especially if it's in a non-Native foster care, um, that's going to be a big adjustment for them. But it, a lot of that depends on where they're at on that spectrum. And a lot of our Native youth are, are pretty modern, um, pretty savvy on the technology. And just like every other American kid, you know, all the music trends, all that stuff, I mean, they, they, they're aware of all that. And then on the other side, they're still aware of all their practices and ceremonies from back home. Re realizing that the child is not going to be a source or an authority for you to say, well, what about this? And what about that? And should, you know, what about this? And tell me about that. If you do that and the kid doesn't know the answer, um, it's almost like, well, maybe I should know the answer. Or why does this person keep asking me? I don't know everything. And so be real careful about, um, uh, questioning the youth as an authority of their own culture. The Indian Child Welfare Act, yeah, if you could describe that for people um, and how it impacts Native youth, that would be great, just for people who aren't aware. Yeah. Well, there's two things that happened, uh, I think, within that same year, 1978. So the first one, the Indian um, Religious Freedom Act, was basically uh, decriminalizing on Indian people from conducting their own ceremonies. Uh, so you could openly do these things where before you, you couldn't do it. Uh, and so we were coming back from the whole boarding school era where you, you weren't supposed to talk your language, you'd cut your hair, all these things, kill the Indian, save the man. 
But what was going on before 1978 uh, was a lot of state social services, uh, county social workers were getting cases of uh, indigenous kids, and they would take them and put them in non-native homes. And then uh, they feel like, uh, I'm like my foster parents, my non-native foster parents, I'm the same as them. But when they walk down the street, they might be treated differently because of their ethnicity. And so um, then trying to make sense of that, trying to understand, well, I'm not like them. I mean, I, I know a lot we do um, of their culture. And I you know, I understand I grew up like this, but I, I have that hole in my life because I don't know my own traditional culture. And so I had some friends in college that uh, were raised in a non-native um home and, and a lot of it predated this uh indian child welfare act they were um, adopted out and uh so they grew up uh in a mormon home and knew all the mormon um beliefs and practices and and followed that and then when they came to college and they ran into other tribal members uh, from their tribe they they quickly realized that they didn't know anything about their own culture and so they uh, being adults, young young adults, then had to embark on reconnecting, um, reestablishing their identity of being an indigenous person, and that's taken um, years. And there was actually some resentment of how did this happen? Why was this allowed to happen? And um, that that whole thing came uh, about because of the it was pre Indian Child Welfare Act. So the act itself basically requires uh, placement with extended family members first as a priority. And then if not, then other tribal members of the same tribe. And if nobody's available there, then other natives. Then if nobody's available there, then you can look at non-native placements. The whole idea uh, around the Indian Child Welfare Act was to maintain that connection. Uh, with their tribal people, maintain that identity, maintain, uh, safeguard them from being exposed unknowingly, unwillingly to taboos and whatnot. And so uh, because life in a first world situation uh, versus life in a third world uh, situation, depending on where, where you're from, oh, it's better over here or it's better over, you know, on the reservation. So it's all a matter of perspective and, and the ethnicity of the, of the observer, I guess. So um, I'm always an advocate for maintaining that uh, connection, even if a child is temporarily placed in a foster home, that if there's an event, a celebration that's going on at the reservation, um, trying to get the kids, you know, connected, maintain that connection, go back home, go attend these uh, events and ceremonies and uh, celebrations, uh, just so that they maintain that um, identity. But not only that, uh, the provider would actually learn more uh, about the identity and the the culture of the of the youth that they have with them in their home. Yeah, I can see that as being so important and so powerful because it is something that over time will erode if you're not persistent and consistent in making sure the youth has a connection there. I'm interested to hear too. Because it's been such a long time that you've been a Native Youth Advocate. How has that changed you as a person over the years? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. I'll, I'll share a story with you guys, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you my answer. <laughs> so the story is that uh, in my work, I had a situation where I was working with a group of uh, Native kids in different situations um, where they, the, the different kids had a... a a non-native person in position of authority. Some of these um, people, majority of them, were very supportive of, of the kids being in this program. And one um, of the physicians, people in a position of authority, was not, and uh, basically did not allow the students to participate, which then came into a equity situation. And I was contacted by the Region Nine Equity. Um, representative. And uh, she says, well, Bruce, this is a civil rights uh, violation and uh, encouraged me to look into filing a civil rights complaint. And so um, I told the Office of Civil Rights, OCR, I I told the representative that I would rather work with this organization than fight them for two reasons. One is 
I'm a minority in this community. And number two, it's like uh, poking the bull, right? I was thinking back in my head, well, I'd get run out of town, you know. <laughs> uh, there'd be a lot of people. It would be pretty publicized and all that stuff, and I chose not to do it. But in hindsight, I uh, I was asked a, a while later, I was applying for a position with the state of Colorado as a tribal liaison, and they had asked me a question about uh, a mistake I had made. And I reflected back to that moment. It's like, I think I should have been a stronger advocate um, because had I done the uh, Office of Civil Rights complaint, I think I was would actually be able to impact systemic change. Uh, and that's what my effort now is to highlight systems that are not working and say, okay, this is not working for everybody. This is not equitable. So we need to change it. Then people get defensive right away and they say, well, what are we going to change it to? It's like, well, I don't have all the answers. But I do know that this needs to change one way or another because it's not equitable. Now, what that looked like should come f- uh, from all the people around the table, not just me. And so um, I'm an I'm a advocate for systems change. Had this person in, in that position of authority um, been mandated to have these uh, Native youth participate in this program, either through their job description or through just a a memo from their supervisor or what have you, I would prefer the job description. And I actually reached out to the the supervisor and advocated for this, that you cannot allow these people in these positions of authority to let their biasness influence their decisions around something like this because you expose the organization to liabilities for Office of Civil Rights complaints. So I'm an advocate for systems change for equitability, I guess, is how it's changed me over the years. Long story, but that's my answer. (laughs) No, it's so powerful. I think it's so powerful and so necessary because this isn't just, you know, one-off situations. Like we're talking about, all these things apply across the board. And I'm wondering too, and hearing that story, I'm wondering, did you almost grow up to be the advocate that maybe you wish you had when you moved to Sioux Falls from the reservation and were thrown into this big city life where you were suddenly the minority and, you know, had to deal with a lot of racism. I totally am that person that I wish I had uh, in my school and in my community and, and have the opportunity to get together with them and build that sense of belonging, that sense of community within the community. So um, when I worked here in Durango with the school district with Native youth, that was one of my objectives, my priorities, was to not only create a sense of belonging for the students in their school buildings, but connected with other students from other schools. The example would be two students at two different elementary uh, schools get to know each other. Then when they go to middle school, they already know somebody there. Uh, And then when they go to know somebody from the other middle school, then when they get to high school, they already have that connection going. So that was one objective. The other one was um, their families, uh, their parents to get to know one another, to, to have food together. So we had a four family events every year when I was doing that program. And, and the objectives really were to build that relationship between myself and the students. I do that every week during the uh, school year. But those four events was my opportunity to develop that trusting relationship with the parents. And so, um, and then getting them to know each other. And so really, like I said, um, building a sense of uh, belonging and a sense of community within the community. As you're talking, I get a visual almost of a safety net, right? And this web of everyone in the community coming together because with the families connected and the kids connected, then when someone needs something in that community, they can go to each other rather than it becoming escalated maybe to a situation where police or child protective services has to be involved. Yes, exactly right. Mm. Yeah. So do you have anything else to add? When I think about people who are willing to be foster parents, I'm so grateful that there um, continue to be foster parents and people willing to open their homes for, for children, regardless of their ethnicity, provider or children. Because that's one of the things that I truly believe in is that our kids are gifts from our creator. And they don't belong to, to me. They belong to us as a community. And so collectively, we as adults 
have a shared responsibility to protect them and to guide them and to support them as they develop into to, to being adults themselves. And so every time I have a chance to speak with people who are working with youth, whether it be in a daycare program or at schools or um, group homes or foster parenting, regardless of those situations, I'm, I'm really grateful that there are, are people out there and um, that are dedicated to, to that purpose of doing what we can. Uh, we can't do it all by ourselves. And so knowing that there's uh, not just uh, me out there, there's you and there's a lot of these uh, foster parents out there, it gives me hope that we're going to be able to meet the needs of those kids that really truly deserve to have a safe home, that they're going to be um, protected as much as they can and provided for. And then still at the same time recognizing that it might not be ideal, which is uh, uh, sometimes unattainable. And so if there's anybody out there uh, that is um, currently or in the future going to be working with a Native youth, thank you. So Rachel, I learned so much with my conversation with Bruce. And one of the things that really has stuck with me is when he was talking about how important it is for Native youth to remain connected to their Native community. And I think this really resonated with me because I've had some personal experience with that myself. I'm by no means saying I've experienced the same oppression and cruelty that Native people have. Um, but being a minority in a very white area growing up was difficult at times. And I remember in middle school was when September 11th happened and it wasn't a great time to be a Middle Easterner, especially not at a school when you, me and our brother were the only Middle Eastern people at our school at all. And one of my close friends would joke with me about like being a terrorist and, you know, it really hurt me, but our mother during that time coming from Iran herself was a backbone for me. She helped me retain cultural pride at a time when the media was telling me I shouldn't be proud of being Middle Eastern. Definitely my school wasn't telling me, you know, friends around me, like there was no one else telling me that this is a good thing. And looking back too, I think as an adult, I wouldn't have retained that cultural pride unless I did have a connection to our mom and her family and to other Middle Easterners in our city. Talking further about her mom, you know, something that I really liked that she did, you know, being a political refugee herself, is she became a translator to refugees from the Middle East. And it started out just being a translator, but it really turned into having meals together, sharing music together, um, you know, and creating that culture in America and creating that sense of home and belonging that I felt like if my mother wasn't from the Middle East, that she wouldn't have been able to really connect with them on that level. Yeah. So I would just encourage everyone listening, if you do have a Native youth in your home or even a youth of a different culture than your own, to make sure that they're still able to plug into their community, that greater cultural community, instead of thinking that you can fulfill all the needs for this youth, because that's just not possible. And cultural ties are something that definitely erode over time, as Bruce mentioned as well, if it's not made a priority to keep those up. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening and special thanks to our guest, Bruce Lee Claire. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any ideas for future episodes. Feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook at Just a Special. And we're now active on Twitter. So tweet us. This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I say that arguably the most important decision to make when becoming a foster parent is choosing what agency you're going to go through. And why is that, Natasha? As a foster parent, you really have to rely on your foster care agency for support. My partner and I chose Kids Crossing, and we really have no regrets. What are some of those services that you and your partner used? Well, Kids Crossing provides many no-cost services, including therapy services for the kids, family therapy, family preservation services, foster parent support groups, trauma-informed parenting trainings, and much more. 
Kids Crossing even gave my partner and I a parenting coach, which was super helpful as we don't have any kids of our own. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. This episode is supported by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, we actually moved into a bigger home right before we started foster care to get more space, and we are sure glad we did. It's made a huge difference. Natasha, tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado. Well, Fabulous Homes Colorado specializes in helping first-time homebuyers and veterans find the right fit for their families, from cute condos to luxury homes. What parts of Colorado do they serve? So they serve El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo. And what I've noticed most about Christina is that she truly cares about the community and not just with lip service. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her just a special sent you. You can also learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated. 